everybody, this is Misty Maris, and this is The Legal Brief. Today, the jury is out on the Ahmad Arbery case. This case has been capturing the headlines. It's been weeks of testimony, including testimony from one of the defendants. That is Travis McMichael. And now today, the, the judge has delivered the jury instructions. Closing arguments have been completed. And the jury is beginning deliberations in this case. So this case is being closely watched. This is something you turn on the TV, you open the newspaper, you listen to the radio, you're going to be hearing about it. So what is this case about? Well, this week we heard the closing arguments from the defense and there's three defendants in this case, Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Roddy Bryant. All three are charged with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, and false imprisonment. The the case against each individual defendant is a little bit different. Travis McMichael is the one that pulled the trigger. He is the one that killed Ahmad Arbery. The prosecution's theory of the case is that the McMichaels saw Ahmad Arbery running in their neighborhood and they made assumptions and driveway decisions about what Ahmad was up to that day. They engaged in a chase which constituted both an aggravated assault and false imprisonment, ultimately resulting in shooting him three times. That's the prosecution's case. The defense has a very different case and relies on two laws uh, that that could show justification for the death of Ahmaud Arbery. They don't contest that Travis McMichael shot Ahmaud Arbery. Nope, that's not part of the case. They admit that, but they say that it was justified. How so? Well, they say that they were engaging in a lawful citizen's arrest, which is a which falls under Georgia law when there is a reasonable and probable suspicion that a felony has been committed. They said that while engaging in that lawful citizen's arrest, Travis McMichael had to act in self-defense with Ahmad Arbery struggled with him over his gun. So the case is very different from both perspectives. The closing arguments were strong on both sides. The prosecution really breaking down the charges, really presenting the case to the jury very well. The defense raising some issues that could result in what is the standard. It is reasonable doubt. So the prosecution has the burden to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt with respect to all three defendants. The defense does not have to prove anything. The prosecution actually has to disprove their claim of self-defense. So this is going to be a case to watch. Uh, So what is the jury grappling with now? I mean, the jury has heard a lot of testimony. The jury has seen video evidence of what happened on that day, February 23rd. And the judge uh, has provided them with the controlling case law. Now, this is actually one of the most interesting parts of this case, because what happens when a 
judge gives the case law. It's called jury instructions. And the jury instructions tell the jury what law needs to be applied. Interestingly enough, in Georgia, the prosecution and defense were allowed to talk about what the legal standards would be before the judge actually charged the jury. That's unusual. It's different in every jurisdiction. So we heard references in both the prosecution's closing arguments and the defense closing arguments to what they believe the judge was going to say. Now, how do they know that? Well, before the judge comes in and gives the jury these instructions, both sides fight over it. It's called a charging conference. Each side fights based on law in that particular jurisdiction and says, we want the instructions to say this. And then the other side comes back and makes arguments for other jury instructions that they believe would be more favorable to their case. In this case, they were going at it on Friday. The prosecution wanted to have jury instructions which limited what could be considered lawful under the citizen's arrest law. So this is really the key to the whole case. The citizen's arrest law is what the defense needs to convince the jury that they fall within a lawful purview of engaging in a citizen's arrest. That's because this defense is really compound. And right now I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of Travis and Gregory McMichael. Now, remember, they see Ahmad Arbery on this day and they grab guns, get into a pickup truck, and begin to pursue him when they see him running through the neighborhood. They say the reason that they did this is because they had seen Ahmad Arbery on video at a house located on their street, which was under construction at night five times before, all culminating in an interaction with police on February 11th. Now, police never saw Ahmad Arbery, but he was seen on the video Officer Robert Rash, who testified, responded, and the McMichaels are seen on his body cam discussing what had happened that night, what that they had seen Ahmaud Arbery before. The police officer says to them, looks like he could have been trespassing, maybe more, and talks to them about the, the, the McMichaels talk to Officer Rash on body cam footage about what had been going on in the neighborhood. There had been some thefts, uh, that the neighborhood was on edge because of increased crime. And this all plays into their argument, the defense argument for justification in engaging in a citizen's arrest. Essentially, they say they had seen him before. Travis McMichael claims that he had seen him uh, another time at night and that he believed Ahmaud Arbery could have a gun because of the way that he reached into his uh, his clothes. He thought that he could be armed. And Travis McMichael called 911. Now, in that 911 call, again, this is February 11th. So this is like two weeks before Ahmaud Arbery's death on February 23rd. He calls 911. We heard the 911 tape in court. He says, there's a guy that I, he, that I think has been burgled Uh, He uses the term burglar or burglary and that he sees him and you can hear he's audibly uh, concerned. And he says, I police should know that this guy might have a weapon. So that's all playing into the defense narrative of why they were justified to engage in a citizen's arrest. They say that on the totality of the circumstances, the neighborhood was on edge. Stuff had been going missing. They'd seen this guy before at night at this construction site at this home. And that all of that led them to believe that a felony 
had been committed and that when they encountered Ahmad Arbery that day on February 23rd, they had justification to detain him until law enforcement came. Now, the citizen's arrest statute, the plain language, a private person may arrest an offender if the offense is committed in his presence or within his immediate knowledge. If the offense is a felony, and the offender is escaping or attempting to escape, a private person may arrest him upon reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. So that's the statute on its face. And look, statutes have language that could be construed one way or the other. The way that we know what what each individual word means is through case law in that particular jurisdiction. So the word that was argued in court on Friday during the charging conference, ultimately what the jury would hear, which is the key in any case. Some people say it's opening statements. Some people say it's closing arguments. Well, the jury instructions, there's a strong argument that that's the most important piece because that's the law the jury is ultimately going to apply. So this word, uh, this word immediate, immediate knowledge, what does that mean? The prosecution wants it to mean something very narrow. The defense wants it to be more of a broad brush and for the jury to say, oh, well, based on the totality of the circumstances going back two weeks, going back these five times since October of 2019, that the McMichaels were justified. Well, the prosecution was victorious and the instruction to the jury was much more limiting in what constitutes immediate knowledge. So the judge charged the jury and said committed in his presence or within immediate knowledge that those terms were actually synonymous. That was in the jury instruction. So very problematic for the defense. Now, in the closing arguments, the prosecution had read the statute verbatim and had said that the right to a citizen, uh, a lawful citizen's warrantless arrest was extinguished if, if the person was actually got away. So it's not... Uh, lawful under the prosecution's theory of the case for the McMichaels to engage in a pursuit of Ahmad Arbery. That in fact, after that moment that he is, you know, he's fleeing and they're not able to stop him. They don't have the ability to continue to pursue him. The defense characterized it differently. The defense said the a citizen engaging in a lawful citizen's arrest actually steps into the shoes of a police officer. So two very different theories of the case, the defense in their closing also saying that when somebody commits a felony and they're fleeing from the felony, it doesn't mean that they're fleeing the moment the felony was committed. Oftentimes people commit crimes and they're not caught right away and they're actually caught later. And that when law enforcement approaches them, they run because they know they did something wrong. So that's how the defense is trying to get around this language in the statute, which is potentially problematic. Uh, in addition to that, this citizen's arrest law, the judge charged the jury and said that when somebody is being confronted with an unlawful citizen's arrest, they have the right to resist. So that goes into Ahmad Arbery and his actions on that day, and that he ha would have the right to resist this citizen's arrest if it was deemed to be unlawful. So a lot for the jury to be to unpack here. Now, why does this all matter? Well, the citizen's arrest law is the key to the case because the McMichaels and Travis McMichael specifically says that 
when he finally confronted Ahmad Arbery after pursuing him in his truck, Travis McMichael gets out of the truck. He and Ahmad Arbery have an interaction, part of which we cannot see on video. But then is we do see on video the remainder of the interaction, and it appears to be the two struggling over Travis McMichael's gun. Now, the prosecution says, why was a gun introduced into this re- interaction at all? Ahmad Arbery was not armed at the time. The McMichaels, again, their argument is they thought he might be. The McMichaels uh, created a self-defense argument, which requires a showing that there was an imminent threat and that it was reasonable for the McMichaels to feel that there was an imminent threat of grave bodily injury or death. And they also have to show that their, the use of force was reasonable under the circumstances. McMichaels say that Ahmad Arbery attacked with fists and prosecution says, well, yeah, he attacked with fists, but you had a gun. So it's not really proportional. Now, under the law, a fist can be used as a deadly weapon. So that was also charged to the jury. So that's why this is all a little more complicated than it looks on its face. But Here's the problem for the defendants. If the jury does not buy the citizen's arrest and they say that the citizen's arrest was unlawful, then the McMichaels will be what's called the initial aggressor. Look, it would be impossible for them to get around that because they pursued Ahmad Arbery in a truck. They came up to him. Uh, Travis McMichael came up to Ahmad Arbery with a gun. It would be very difficult for them to get out of the title of initial aggressor or being the ones that provoked an attack against themselves. And if you provoke it, you cannot use self-defense. No ifs, ands, or buts, the case is over. So the McMichaels really need the self-defense argument to stick. Now, who's Roddy Bryan? So this guy, Roddy Bryan, is another guy who lives in the neighborhood. He doesn't have any interaction with the McMichaels before, but he sees this chase go, going on. He sees the car coming, the, the, the truck coming down the street. He sees Ahmaud Arbery running. He, he says to police after the fact that he just knew something was going on. He knew something wasn't right. So he gets into his car. He gets into actually a, a truck and he also continues in this pursuit. Now, Roddy Bryan tapes the interaction between the McMichaels and Ahmad Arbery. And his defense is, I'm just a witness. I didn't have anything to do with this. I didn't talk to the McMichaels before. I'm not part of some criminal conspiracy. I just saw this happen. In fact, his his attorney went so far as to say, this guy is not a criminal mastermind, okay? This guy is somebody who saw something going on, participated not because he was trying to participate in a crime. He didn't even know the McMichaels had a gun. He just jumped in and he's a witness to this. So that's the argument there. Now, Some might ask, how is Travis McMichael the guy that pulls the trigger? How is Gregory McMichael and Roddy Bryant? How are they being charged with these high level crimes, malice, murder, felony murder? Well, there's a law and it's called in Georgia, it's called party to a crime. In other states, it's called aider and abetter. Some call it criminal conspiracy. Here it's called party to a crime. And it says that every person concerned in the commission of a crime is a party thereto and may be charged and convicted of commission of the crime. What does that mean? Well, in not legalese, it means that even if you didn't pull the trigger, you could still be convicted of murder. And The reason that you can be is because you are a part of a crime, even if it's being 
even if you're not the person who does the underlying act that causes the death, you can still be convicted of murder. So here's the standard. A person is a party to a crime if he directly commits the crime, indirectly causes some other person to commit the crime under such circumstances that the other person is not guilty of any crime either in fact or because of legal incapacity, intentionally aids and abets in the commission of a crime, or intentionally advises, encourages, hires, counsels, or procures another to commit a crime. So what does aid and abet mean? To be guilty as a party to a crime is an aider and an abetter. A defendant must be an accessory before the fact. Aid means to give help or assistance, while abet means to encourage, incite, or help. So the legal theory here is that even if Roddy Bryan did not sit around in a room and talk to the McMichaels and say, we're going to go out and do this today, even if he wasn't a part of the initial get in the truck and pursue him out Arbery, because he came in and he participated later and he said he saw the McMichaels and he, he knew something was going on and he wanted to help them. Those are his own words that he should be equally as criminally liable as as the McMichaels are in this case. Now, the McMichaels, with respect to party to a crime, Greg McMichael, he didn't pull the trigger, but he and Travis, by their own words, when they saw Mart Arbery running down the street, said, let's get in the car and let's let's go get this guy. Not kill him. They did not say that. They said, let's go follow this guy, that they wanted to detain him so he could either be identified by police or if he had committed a crime, the police could look into it. That's what they say they wanted to do. So their defense is very different than Roddy Bryan. He comes in a little bit after the fact. So he has a stronger defense that he is not a party to the crime. And some of the defenses that were also spelled out in the jury instructions, no proof of criminal intent. There, there must be evidence that one is a party to a crime or an accomplice through proof of a common criminal intent. Again, it doesn't require that that criminal intent be explicit, common criminal intent. It can be by actions and can be when there is an overt action towards the commission of that crime. And that's really the prosecution's argument with respect to Roddy Bryan. Now that we've broken that down a little bit and we've gotten to the crux of what's going on in this case, I mean, look, the video is so difficult to watch. It's uh, It's been played in court, you know, 10, 20 times. I, I think I've personally seen it at least 20 times just through the course of watching the trial. And it's very difficult. The defense wants to broaden the net and the scope of what can be considered in this lawful citizen's arrest to things that had occurred, not just in in their immediate knowledge on that day, but beyond that. The defense also made an argument in their closing that in addition to this totality of the circumstances, and they brought a bunch of people from the neighborhood into the trial that testified that, yeah, there have been some crime going on and people were concerned and uh, that they, you know, that used to be this idyllic neighborhood, but they didn't lock their doors. Now they do. They've seen people caught on camera. They were concerned about what was going on at this property. So they're painting the picture of this neighborhood that has these issues and that 
and the argument is that it makes it reasonable for them to pursue Ahmad Arbery, who they've seen on these cameras before, broadening the brush of what constitutes immediate knowledge. They also say that they, on the day of this, this pursuit, they saw Ahmad Arbery trying to get into a truck. And there's a finger, there's, there's a handprint on the truck. There's fingerprints on the truck that they say are consistent with Ahmad Arbery. So the defense is also trying to say that they might have witnessed an attempted or uh, an attempted carjacking. So this is all what the the jury is being uh, is grappling with. And look, it's actually a very complicated case. You've got three defendants. You've got these interlocking charges, and you you've got a, an analysis that's different for each defendant in the case because each case has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. So the three defendants are charged both individually and as a party to a crime under the law. If the jury finds that one of the men committed a felony, it can convict them all of that crime on the basis if the jury believes they were acting together. Again, this is particularly important for Roddy Bryan. And during the course of the trial, his lawyer really worked to distance him from the other two defendants saying that, you know, he had no hand in this. He was actually just a witness. So to convict of the top charge, which is malice murder, the jury would have to find that the men had a deliberate intention to kill. Uh, The other murder charges, felony murder, means that they have to prove that the men were engaged in an underlying felony, that they committed an underlying felony, and that because of the commission of that felony, there's a causal connection to the death of Ahmaud Arbery. Here in this case with the McMichaels, it is... Assault with a deadly weapon, both a gun and their truck. And for Roddy Bryan, it is assault with a deadly weapon, his truck. For all three defendants, it is false imprisonment. The defense lawyers have argued that, again, the men were attempting to make a citizen's arrest and then ultimately killed Arbery in self-defense. The prosecution says they had no justification for a citizen's arrest and they cannot claim self-defense because they instigated the confrontation between themselves and Ahmad Arbery. So what else does the jury have to consider? Well, we have all of these charges. The prosecution has to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And the prosecution has to disprove self-defense. The judge did let in some lesser charges. So the lesser charges, uh, the men are accused of four other felonies besides murder. So that could also lead to that felony murder conviction. Uh, if they find out that if they if the jury finds that Ahmad Arbery's death was caused along the way because of one of those felonies with a causal connection, then they can be convicted. Now, with respect to Mr. Bryan, Roddy Bryan, the jury can actually consider reduced charges. So the jury instructions, and we didn't know this was coming, and I'm not surprised that his attorney argued for it uh, in the charging conference because, again, Roddy Bryan's role in this is a bit different, and he has different defenses. The judge says that the jury could find, instead of aggravated assault involving pickup truck, they could consider whether Mr. Bryan was instead guilty of a a reduced charge of simple assault, reckless conduct, or reckless driving. Now, that's really important because those are not felonies. Those are misdemeanors. So if he is found guilty of a misdemeanor, it cannot serve as the basis for a felony murder conviction. So that is all what the jury is parsing through. Uh, It's, it's, it's a, 
it's a big haul here. I mean, these are very complicated jury instructions. They pertain to three different defendants with three different factual scenarios. We heard from all three defense attorneys, slightly different arguments on the part of each. But in general, the basic argument here is lawful citizens arrest followed by confrontation, which resulted in lawful uh, self-defense. And that's what the defense wants the jury to believe. Now, the jury has just been, I mean, they've been deliberating for about an hour now. Uh, We're going to keep our eye on this because we're in verdict watch. So we'll see what happens with the jury. There's been a lot of people opining that it's a tough week. And as an attorney, a defense attorney myself, and I am a trial attorney uh, by trade, and I've been practicing for a long time. You get a little nervous when you have a week like this because we've got Thanksgiving on Thursday. And you wonder, is a jury going to rush through these charges because they have familial obligations? Now, again, I have a wholehearted faith in the jury system and jurors take their jobs very, very seriously, but they're also still people, too. So these are these are uh, these are issues that everybody is talking about right now with respect to the jury. The other piece is in order for the case to be complete have a final disposition, either guilty or acquitted, uh, guilty or innocent, all of the jurors have to agree. So all of the jurors have to agree with respect to all three defendants, with respect to all of these serious felony charges. That's tough. So there is no time limit. There isn't a time limit. It's not like you got to decide by Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. No, there's no time limit for juries. So juries can take as much time as they need. Juries oftentimes ask for more information. They want to review testimony. They want to review video. They want to ask questions. They need something clarified. That happens during the deliberation process. We haven't heard any of that yet, but I anticipate, you know, we're keeping an ear on the courtroom because we want to know what questions the jury asks. It can help us gauge what they might be finding more or less important, what they're putting there, what they're, what they're making their decision based on. But there's not a lot of time here before the Thanksgiving holiday. Now, they, the, the court is going to convene today, tomorrow. If they don't come to a decision by end of day Wednesday, then this will probably pick back up on Monday. So they do have all the time in the world, all the time that they need. Um, if the jury comes back and says we can't come to a decision, the judge can read what's called an Allen charge, which essentially says, go back in and do your very best to come to a unanimous decision. It is common practice for judges to read the Allen charge based on a Supreme Court case when the jury finds itself in a place where it's hung uh, and and that they can't come to a consensus on those charges. The Allen charge can be read. But we're a million steps ahead right now on that particular piece because the jury's only been deliberating it for an hour. I'm going to give you some generalities and has nothing to do with this particular case, just generalities when you're a defense lawyer. When you're a defense attorney, for the most part, and there's exceptions, and actually one exception was the Kyle Rittenhouse case, but when you're a defense attorney, you want the jury to take more time. When the jury comes back quickly, that is generally a bad sign. In this case, I would say that would be a bad sign. If the jury came back today real quick, turn this around very fast on all of these charges. If the jury takes a little more time, you feel a little bit better as a defense lawyer because you know that they're going through each and every charge and making that determination on whether it was 
proved by the prosecution beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, the, 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 I mean, as we've said, the citizen's arrest law, this is the key to the defense case. And the jury instruction was more positive for the prosecution. In fact, after the jury instructions were read, you heard all the defense counsel say, we're renewing our objection to the way that the charges, uh, the way that the charges ended up coming out. And that's because the defendants have to preserve issues on appeal. One of the main issues on appeal in most criminal court cases is that the jury instructions were improper or prejudicial towards their client. In fact, in the charging conference, the defense actually said to the judge, if you read that immediate knowledge component of the citizen's arrest law as be as synonymous with being in the presence of the defendants, you have gutted. They actually use that word. You have gutted our case. And I, I think that they're right. And I'm not saying it isn't proper. Both sides argue back and forth about what those words mean. So in layman's terms, we all know what the word immediate means, right? It's common sense. What does immediate mean? It means just before, right now. But in the law, every word has a very specific legal meaning. They're called legal terms of art, and they're often used differently in the context of a statute than you would use them in your everyday life. And that's why it was very important for the judge to define all of that in the jury instructions. Right now, keeping an eye on the courtroom, we're in verdict watch. If jury questions come up, we'll analyze them. But in the meantime, just wanted to give everybody an overview of what the jury is thinking about now, what they have to grapple with, complicated case, three different defendants, lesser included charges, party to a crime. This case has a lot of twists and turns, so keep, so, uh, keep an eye on it, and we'll see how this one shakes out. I would say that the best argument for the prosecution, malice murder. I don't know about that. Malice murder requires that element of intent, but felony murder. If the jury does not buy a lawful citizen's arrest and finds that the McMichaels and or Roddy Bryan, by virtue of chasing Mr. Arbery in their truck, committed the felony of assault with a deadly weapon, i.e. the truck, as to the McMichaels assault with a deadly weapon, i.e. a gun, or for all three defendants, false imprisonment, and Mr. Arbery died in the course of them committing that underlying felony, felony murder is not a difficult leap. And again, party to a crime, this is this is the this is the key here. This is the key here. Party to a crime. What makes you a party to a crime? Well, you have to have some common criminal intent. And you know, the the prime example actually is you're the getaway driver. This is what you learn in law school. You're the getaway driver. Your two other accomplices go into a convenience store. They want to rob the convenience store. And you didn't even know they brought guns in there. You had no idea. You're just the getaway driver. You didn't have a clue that they went in there with guns. You can still be convicted of murder if somebody dies in the course of com the commission of that felony. So th this is everything the jury's grappling with. Another question that uh, that many people have asked, does it matter that Ahmad Arbery, nobody ever found any items on him? Does it matter that he ever stole anything? Does it matter that he didn't have a gun? Sure. I mean, it matters. But the judge did charge in the jury instructions the elements of burglary 
and the elements of attempted burglary, meaning that nothing actually has to be stolen in order for attempted burglary to be established. So attempted burglary just means that you went into a dwelling with the intent to steal something. So the defense argument is they're inferring intent by these visits to this construct uh, this house that's under construction at night five times before. So that's all a piece of this case as well. The jury was charged on what the McMichaels say they believed Ahmad Arbery had done. They say they believed he engaged in a burglary or attempted burglary, a carjacking or an attempted carjacking. The judge went through those elements in order for the McMichaels belief to be justifiable under this statute, they have to have reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. So everybody understands that's the lowest level, lowest burden of proof. That's probably, and it's exactly what it means, probably means I 51% think that that he could have committed a crime. Another big issue for the defense in this case, uh, final, final point before we continue to wait for this verdict to come in, a big piece of the defense was Painting this idyllic community and really humanizing the three defendants. These are not career criminals. These are three men who were, you know, they did something they wish they actually did not do in retrospect, but they were, they wanted to protect their community. They wanted to protect Satilla Shores, this idyllic community that they lived in, and really tried to paint the picture of these guys are just like you, Jerry. You know people like this. These are the people in your community. You know what? The police can't be everywhere. You need people who care about the neighborhood. That was the defense strategy, uh, really trying to humanize them. And one of the issues with what the defense had to do in this case, and there's been a lot of criticism, especially of Gregory McMichael's lawyer, is victim blaming. And victim blaming is something that we talk about a lot as criminal defense attorneys. You toe a fine line when you start blaming the victim for the terrible tragedy that happened to them. Here we're talking about a murder trial. We're talking about a 25-year-old who was killed. It's a tragedy. No matter what happens in this case, it's an absolute tragedy. Everybody can agree to that. But the problem with this case is in order for the defense to be successful, On the citizen's arrest law, which, again, is the key to the case, the key to the case for the defense, that they're engaged in a justified citizen's arrest. They have no choice but to paint Ahmaud Arbery as a criminal because they have to reasonably believe that he committed a felony, a felony, not just a crime, a felony, a serious crime. So they have to paint him as a criminal. They have to paint him as somebody that was suspicious. They have to paint him as somebody who is up to no good. And that can be a tough pill for a jury to swallow when you go too far. So they really had to walk a tightrope there. Um, I think some lawyers were better at it than others. Another big issue in this case, stuff going on outside the courtroom. And we've seen this time and time again. It happened in another trial we just covered, the Rittenhouse trial. It certainly was a factor in George Floyd that there's protests going on. There's a lot going on outside the courtroom. Yesterday, there were people there with guns right outside of the court. And these issues were brought up to the judge. Mistrials were, mistrial motions were made. Uh, Mistrial means that there's prejudice to the defendant. So the judge has to scrap this trial and everybody starts again. Some of these arguments were made in a way that uh, 
I, I don't know. Well, there's one lawyer here, the lawyer for Roddy Bryant, the way that he presents his motions for mistrial, while I believe that he certainly should be making these motions and he should be getting this stuff on the record because everything is about preserving issues for appeal. The way that he delivered it, not so great and, and really kind of off-putting. So not good. But the general principle is, as a defense attorney, you have two jobs. Your first job is to zealously advocate for your client in court and present the best defense possible within the confines of the law. The other part is keep those ears and eyes open because you have to make objections, make motions, do it all during the course of of, uh, defending the case. You also have to be preserving the record for appeal. So if there's anything that could be prejudicial to your client, you have to make sure it is on the record, which is what the defense did. They said these protests, these demonstrations outside are prejudicial to the, the to their the defendants that they uh, the jury is not sequestered. So the jury, they don't know what to what extent the jury has seen anything or heard anything, but it could be seen as jury intimidation. It could be seen as trying to sway the jury and it's prejudicial to their clients. So all of those objections are on the record. The court, yeah, and not surprisingly, they did not grant a mistrial. The judge said there was no evidence that the jury heard or knew of any of these demonstrations outside that he there was word that the uh it was getting a little loud outside so he moved the jury to an interior courtroom where the issue should no longer be problematic so a lot going on in this case those were all appellate issues not shocked that the judge did not grant a mistrial judges rarely do the criminal justice system is based on a a a jury system where a jury of your peers makes a determination. The judge does not want to grant a mistrial. And this is a general rule, not just this judge. The judge wants the jury to be the ultimate decider of the, of the case. They want the jury to be the one to decide whether or not there's an acquittal or whether or not there's a guilty verdict. So that's all that's going on in that courtroom. Uh, a lot of people making comparisons to the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Again, that that verdict came out very close in time. That verdict acquittal on all charges. Some, many have asked me, uh, as I've been covering both cases, do you think the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict will have any impact on the verdict in this case, in the McMichaels Bryan case? And my answer is, number one, it shouldn't. And number two, no. And the reason being, different law, different facts, different jurisdiction, different jury. So only time will tell. Thank you for joining me here this afternoon. We will be back if there are developments in the Arbery case and to analyze what the jury verdict is when that verdict comes. Right now on Verdict Watch, covering this case for HLN, And we'll be having several more appearances outside of that, breaking down everything we see in the courtroom. Thanks again for joining.